Welcome to episode 24 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, this is Todd Houston again. I wanted to mention the 3C Digital Media Network, which is our new company that we've developed here. And I wanted to just encourage you to sign up on the site. All it takes is just putting your email in, and that way you can stay in touch with us and we can stay in touch with you. And you will hear and get information about all of our new uh, blogs that might come out. Uh, you'll hear about our new webinars and courses. And so it's a way just to stay in touch. And that's important these days, staying in touch. So if you don't mind, go over to 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up. And now, back to the interview. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Paige Stringer. Paige is the founder and executive director of the Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss. Born with a severe to profound hearing loss, Paige benefited from early identification and early intervention services as a baby to learn to listen and speak. In 2009, she established the Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss to help young children who are deaf and hard of hearing and living in developing countries access the locally based services that are that they need to listen, talk, and thrive. Prior to her current role as the organization's executive director, Paige held various marketing positions for 15 years, including at Amazon.com and the Clorox Company. She served on the board of directors of the Coalition for Global Hearing Health from 2014 until 2016. Paige has been involved in committee work at the World Health Organization since 2015 to raise global awareness for hearing loss, including in her current role on the advisory group for the WHO Resolution and World Report on Hearing. She lived for a few months in Geneva in 2019 to lead the development of the communication strategy for the 2021 release of the WHO World Report on Hearing. She has been honored with several awards for her work in developing countries, including the 2019 World of Children Health Award, the 2018 AGBL Association Award for International Services, and the 2014 Humanitarian of the Year Award by the American Academy of Audiology. Page earned a full tennis scholarship for, to the University of Washington, where she earned her bachelor's degree. She holds a master's of arts degree from the University of San Francisco and her master's in public health global health degree from the University of Washington. It is my pleasure to welcome Paige Stringer to the podcast. 
Well, Paige, welcome to the podcast. Can you share more about your personal journey? Sure. It's an honor to be here. So thank you for having me. Um, so I, st- I was born with a profound hearing loss. Um, and at the time, newborn hearing screening was not something that was available across the United States. And I was born to a family um, with typical hearing. Uh, there was no history of hearing loss anywhere in my family. So uh, there was no, um, no indication that, that hearing should be a concern for us. And shortly after I was born, we moved to England. Um, I was about three months of age when we moved over there. And actually, no, we were one month of age when when we moved over there. And um, they they have the British health system sent along a a nurse to um, check out just my vitals and to make sure that I was developing as a typically um, Mm -hmm. typical baby would be developing. And so this public health nurse came to my family's home and when they tried to test my hearing simply by having me turn around and make some noise behind me, um, I didn't respond. And after some more tests like that, they thought there may be a problem. So they came back later and um, and conf- confirmed I was still having difficulties hearing. So they referred my family to an audiologist and um, that's when they confirmed my degree of hearing loss. And unfortunately in England at the time, they did have some wonderful resources in place to help my parents to understand what this meant and to um, offer up some uh, kind of speech therapy related services. Mm-hmm. And so my family always wanted me to learn to listen and speak if that was possible. But also recognizing that if it wasn't possible, they were willing to learn sign language. It was just, it was kind of a try to figure out how to best help this child type of thing. But um, I always say that I must have had a lot to talk about. And so it was, um, I was able to develop my listening and spoken language with the um, support of hearing aids and this uh, teaching, teaching support that was provided by this therapist over in England. And when I was three years of age, of age, we moved back to the United States and I was enrolled into an early intervention program. Um, and then when I reached mainstream, or sorry, when I reached kindergarten age, I was in, entered into mainstream schools where I've always been able to um, participate with hearing peers in um, typical schools um, and went through my academic career in, in regular uh, school settings. Wow. And so you went to public schools and, and you had support through the public schools and then college. Yeah. So um, I did receive support in public schools until um, I was in, they kind of tapered off by the time I was in junior high, but I did get some support um in junior high, then by the time I reached high school, I was pretty much done with all of that. But um, there was, you know, of course, an IEP set up and and um, had, had my services uh, for auditory, um, just practice type, you know, practicing my auditory skills in the morning before school, and then I would also see a uh, speech therapist during the day, um, and be pulled out of class for like thirty minutes or whatever the time was in order to get that support. But it was um, pretty minimal um, and more just to make sure that I was staying on track. 
and, you know, keeping up with the other kids in school. And then um, by the time, like I said, by the time I was in high school, um, all of those services were really not needed anymore. And then I uh, graduated from high school, went to the University of Washington. Um, I played tennis um, growing up and was one of, I was a nationally ranked tennis player. So I got a fortunate, I was fortunate to get a um, tennis scholarship to the University of Washington. And so uh, my parents were happy about that and more money for retirement for them. And so I played tennis for the University of Washington and earned my degree there. And then um, I went on later to earn my master's degree um, at the University of San Francisco. And then more recently got a master's in public health degree from the University of Washington. So um, I feel very fortunate that I had all that support when I was young, which enabled me to achieve the level of academic success that I was able to, to be able to do. Sure, sure. And you, you've you used hearing aids all along. Yeah, so when um, you know, for, when I was born, cochlear implants were um, not really, I don't think they were even developed yet, or they mm-hmm. were such in the very early days of that technology. Um, so I, I first became a candidate, um, or was tested for candidacy in high school. And at that time, they were implanting children who um, really, really had like significant, like profound hearing loss who um, didn't score very well on their um, on their speech recognition test. And I was doing well enough with my hearing aids that I uh, just didn't qualify for the cochlear implant at that time. But then um, further along as I got older, um, I definitely qualified and so, I, I got, so yes, yeah, so I had, I started off with analog hearing aids, um, which was was available back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And so really um, my first pair of hearing aids was body aids. Mm-hmm. And so we have all these pictures of me as a baby, like wearing these big body aids on my chest. And then, um, then it went to the behind the ear hearing aid, which is analog. And then moved to digital hearing aids. And then um, in uh, 2017, excuse me, 2013, I received my cochlear implant and it was just amazing to me um, that I was able to do as well as I did with hearing aids, which is recognizing how much of the world I really was missing. So I'm, so today I have a cochlear implant on one side and hearing aid on the other. I am a candidate for bilateral implants, mm-hmm. but I had some problems with vertigo. And so the recommendation was to maybe lay off on getting that second implant um, for now, and maybe down the road, I might get that. So Awesome. Well, congratulations on the implant and transitioning to, to that. Um, and, and you, you remind me of uh, a dear friend of mine here in Ohio is Carrie Spangler, who's a audiologist. Uh, and she's, you know, just recently got her cochlear implant and, and it's like been, you know, like amazing uh, what she can now hear versus what she assumed she was hearing before, but now she's, you know, definitely it's been a big difference for her. Yeah. I always, um, I always kind of joke with my friends with normal hearing that as their hearing gets worse, as they get older, that mine could actually improve a little bit in that area. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's funny. 
Um, it really is remarkable because even even now, um, I think it started to plateau certainly in the last few years, but I was noticing just really minuscule improvements um, years after getting the implant. So it's, it's, it's funny, it's really fascinating how the brain works and it learns to adapt to um, what it's presented with. And um, my, I actually implanted my worst ear and today it's by far my better ear. And it's just really, it's really striking how the brain can take, you know, auditory input um, through the hearing aid on one side and then this, um, you know, input, input through the cochlear implant on the other side and somehow mix it up and <laughs> it comes out sounding fine. So yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, that, that neuroplasticity is, is very interesting, you know, and see all that happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 really wonderful. Well, I'm very happy for you that you've you've gone through that and and things are you know sounding good. How's that sound? Um, so, um, you then um, you you were involved with Listen and Talk. Is that right? At one time. Oh, I was yes. Um, back in let's see, 2007, I think it was. Um, I, I was working for Amazon.com at the time, mm -hmm. and I was interested to give back into the community. I was trying to find ways like, that I could be contributed in a meaningful way. And I just stumbled across Listen and Talk. I was not familiar with the program back then. Um, and, and so I learned about it um, and met with the, who was the executive director at the time. And so um, was offering to volunteer, but he felt like a better role would be for me to be on the board. Um, so I interviewed with different board members, got to got to know the school, meet the teachers, and thought you know it would be a wonderful program to be involved with. And so um, so I did. I was on the board of directors for several years and then for a short period of time, I actually served as the communication development director for Listening Talk. Um, and it was just really a personal, personally um, gratifying, tremendous, tremendous experience because I could see the evolution of technology from the time when I was very young to what was available in today's day and age. And the the, you know, the outcomes in the children are dramatically different. And so it really was just, um, it was just remarkable to be able to be a part of that and start to learn and, and experience what the um, evolution has gone through with tech technology, with early intervention, with brain research, and all of these wonderful things that the field has managed to achieve. Um, and see see how it really is impacted so many people's lives. So listen to talk. Um, yeah, I hold them very dear to my heart. It's a great program in Seattle. Well, the the current issue, the current episode that's out now of this podcast is an interview with Maura. I saw that. I, I stumbled yeah. on it um, on Facebook. I saw the posting. So yeah, yeah. so that's great. <laughs> so it was it was really wonderful this to talk with her last time and. Uh, and really get more about the history. And she's been there from the beginning. And so it was interesting to hear about yeah. all of that. Yeah, it's been a great yeah. program over the years and and, can, and and still is considered one of the best programs in the country. So 
It's a right. phenomenal place. Yeah, it really is. They do a lot of amazing things. The, the, the entire staff there is just really incredible people. So, yeah. yeah. I would agree. So from, oh, did you, did you buy stock in Amazon while you were there? Um, <laughs> well, part of my uh, job, they gave us stock options. Um, and unfortunately, I sold them all too soon, to oh. put it that way. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, I wish, wish we all would have recognized that early on, right? Um, right, exactly. <laughs> so from Listen and Talk, there is now in your life, uh, around that time, the country of Vietnam comes into play. And so, so how did that happen when you, when you got connected to Vietnam? Yeah, so um, I was, as I mentioned, I was at Amazon for uh, about six years, five and a half years or so. And previous, prior to that, I had been working at Clorox. So my whole uh, career up to that point had been in business development, marketing type roles. Um, and also towards the end of my Amazon career, more like marketing communications, especially because the internet was really coming to be a big thing, as we all know, <laughs> and Amazon was sort of at the forefront of that. So um, during that time, I was kind of going through a reflective phase about how I wanted to see the rest of my career evolve. And I wasn't sure that the corporate world was something I wanted to stay in for an indefinite period of time. I wasn't quite sure what the next step might look like. Um, so I took some time, actually, I left Amazon. And I took some time to um, think about what that next step might look like. And um, during that time, I, I was um, offering my services in in internet, you know, website, copywriting, and um, marketing communication for several of small companies here in the Seattle area, and particularly in the travel space, because there was a, there was a huge need for this type of understanding and you know just how how does this all work this online stuff, and there was an organization that um, I got connected with that um, they actually do a lot, they, they, they're no longer around, but at the time they did a lot of consulting work with different um, countries to help develop their tourism um, programs and make sure they do it in a sustainable way. And they also had a, um, like a magazine. And so I was contributing a lot of my writing to this magazine effort. And they asked me to write an article about customized vacations when you, tell the tour company what you want to see and do on your trip, as opposed to following a set itinerary. So today, I think that's pretty common today in travel, but back then that was a totally new thing. So I had talked to several um, travel companies about this new, new, new way of doing things in travel. And this one company, tour company said that they offered um, not only customized trips, but they also offered volunteer placements for people to be able to engage with the local culture and give back to the community as part of their customized trip, which sounded really interesting. And the, the name of this tour company is Buffalo Tours. And they, um, so they, they have been doing this for a while quite successfully. So I asked them to send me some examples of volunteer placements 
and they, they didn't know that I have a hearing loss. And they sent me quite a, a, an array of everything from like building water wells, you know, in Africa to um, helping out with um, counting animals in, you know, in jungle type environments. And then this one was um, teaching English or helping to teach English to children who are deaf or hard of hearing in Vietnam. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had been on the listening talk board and involved in that organization and um, really seeing the impact of advancements made in the field on children today. But and so it really led me through this whole reflection about what it means to be hard of hearing or deaf. And so it's going through a, a real personal um, reflection phase. So this this uh, communication really hit me at a pretty pivotal time in my life. So when I saw this um, example that you could teach English to children who are deaf and hard of hearing in Vietnam, I finished the article that I was writing, then I contacted the tour company and said, I would like to do this myself. I have time. So I want to go to Vietnam and see the country and end up at this program and see what there is to learn about helping kids who are deaf and hard of hearing learn to speak English, especially when they're Vietnamese. <laughs> and so, right, um, right. so, um, so I did. So I went on this trip and, and then I'll never forget the moment when I pulled up at this school for the deaf. It's a residential, it, it was, and now it's more of a hybrid, but at the time it was purely a residential school for the deaf. Um, to get out of the car, I had the tour guide with me. He was introducing me to the staff there. And I met the director and the director's name is Tui. And she looked, she, you know, she looked at me and I said, hello. And I spoke to her and she, she, she has, she knows English. And she immediately remarked that she thought I was deaf. And I said, oh, well, I, I am, but I were hearing technology and I can speak. And she was blown away. Like, how, how is this possible? Like, how can this be? Because they didn't have any examples of success back in 2008 in Vietnam of adults or even, you know, older people who are able to listen and talk or even children for that matter. So um, she took me inside and immediately sat me down and she wanted to know my whole life story. But what was interesting is that she had just come back from Europe where she and a couple other Vietnamese professionals were sent to learn about early intervention in general, because in Vietnam, they had no early intervention program. So um, in 2008, if you had a disability, there really wasn't anything for you until you were five or six. And as we all know, that's very late. <laughs> and so, um, and, and there were no real, um, even early learning programs for typically developing children. So this was an area that Vietnam was really trying to change at the time. So they had sent a contingent of professionals abroad to learn about the topic and then to come back and to implement, just to start to implement this type of services for, um, for children who are under six years of age. And so, Given that I was a product of the very early intervention she was looking to put into place, she was really interested to hear about how it is, how could it even be possible for somebody with my degree of hearing loss to be able to listen and speak. So, um, so we really hit it off right away. And over the course of my time there, I did help the teachers um, 
teach English, but it really felt like there was a larger purpose at play here, where um, Sotiri would take me around to these academic meetings, and she would nudge me, and she would say, just say something. So I would say something, and then she would say, look, look, and see what's possible. And it was, um, it was, it was funny in some ways, and in other ways, it was quite, like, it was pretty um, significant, like, that there was making this much of an impact. <clears throat> and so um, at one point, some of the teachers didn't think that I was as deaf as I said I was, because I, you know, how people fake being hard of hearing or deaf all the time. I'm just kidding. But, you know, just, I mean, it was funny that they actually thought that I was pretending to be hearing, you know, have a hearing loss when I really am not. But um, so they asked me if I would be willing to, Give, uh, to undergo a hearing test. And so I was like, sure, show me that audiology booth. So they took me into the audiology booth and tested my hearing. And I always tell people that it was the first time in my life that I was happy to have such a horrible audiogram because uh, it just showed, I mean, you look at my audiogram and it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And so, um, so they, you know, they took the results on this little piece of paper and they gave it to me to take to Chewy. So I went into her office and she had the audiograms of several of the children in her program. And this particular school has 300 children all uh, between six and maybe 20 years of age. Um, and she had the audiograms spread out on the table. And my hearing loss was better than some of them but certainly had, there were a lot that had a lot more hearing than I did. But because they, I mean, there were even moderate hearing losses in this, in this group. And so um, it was just a demonstration, a real life demonstration that of the benefit of the early identification, the early intervention services that I had when I was young, which, which enabled a completely different outcome than what was happening for these children. So over the time, um, I had or I had reached out to more. They were interested to the Vietnamese teachers were interested to understand more. So with more being an expert, um, I I did ask her to share whatever she could about um, about um, you know, auditory verbal practice, um, hearing technology, just whatever she was willing to be able to provide. She just sent me a ton of wonderful PowerPoints and resources. And if anybody knows more, they, they know that she's very complete in providing, um, trying to help as much as she can. So that was incredibly helpful. And they, um, I was able to share that information. But over the time that I was there, uh, Tui and I started to kind of, we, we started talking about this mandate that she was given, you know, that she's supposed to go and figure out early intervention for these kids in her country without a whole lot of modeling to do it. And so she was saying that it would be wonderful to bring some professionals to from other places that could come and help them understand what was needed and then to be able to train them. And then the Vietnamese would take that information and then be able to train others and collectively they could improve services for children with hearing loss in their country. And I really liked the sense of empowerment that she had, like that she and responsibility that, you know, if you give us the information, we're gonna, we're gonna run with it and we're going to improve things. So we actually came up with a, a plan for 
um, it started off just being a very simple um, training workshop type of thing. And then, I, you know, then I went back to the United States and started contacting different organizations to see if there was anyone out there that was doing something similar that would be interested in getting behind this, uh, this plan that we had developed. But what I had quickly learned was that there were several organizations that have a very service-based uh, concept of um, humanitarian, for lack of a better word, humanitarian projects where they go to a country, they provide hearing aids, they, you know, they fit hearing aids, or they go somewhere and they do the work to help the kids, but then they leave. And it's not very sustainable, in my opinion. And so what I was hoping, and there was that, and also uh, there were organizations that just focused on one part of the problem. So maybe it was, you know, screening or fitting hearing aids, but there wasn't anybody that seemed to have the complete continuum of care in mind. Mm -hmm. And so that's when um, I decided that this was something that needed to be addressed and it was a, clearly a problem, not just in Vietnam, but in other developing countries too. So in 2009, I established the Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss, which is an organization that helps um, countries and organizations within countries to establish that continuum of care from early identification to hearing technology to rehabilitation, that complete package for children zero to six so that they have a chance to learn to listen and speak. And so um, our first program was in Vietnam and we, we still are there today. What, what is that? Like we started in 2010, so 11 years later. And uh, we've trained over 300 people. We, the project started off with just training teachers in South Vietnam. Um, and even our first summer program was significant. It was, it was um, six weeks long and it involved uh, 90 teachers from, in Vietnam from 35 different schools throughout the South part of the country. And we had a global foundation team of professionals that, um, that, that I had put together to develop the curriculum and it covered many different topics and aspects. Um, and then this group traveled with me to Vietnam to teach the material that summer. And so that's where it started. And then over time, it's just grown exponentially to the point where, where we were providing training in hospitals um, to medical professionals, to technicians in the field who are doing audiology work to um, therapists, to teachers in classroom setting, mainstream teachers even if they understood about inclusion. Um, and then working with therapists in hospital settings as well as school setting. And it started in the South, went up to the North of Hanoi. And then uh, we expanded finally to the center part of Vietnam. And a big part of what we do is to uh, prepare those we train to train others so that the benefits are exponential and sustainable kind of two-way vision, right? You know, give us, give us the information and we can make things better. And so, um, so for that center part of Vietnam, we actually um, asked the professionals that we had trained to lead the training. And our team's role was more of coaching the trainers. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and so today, you know, and we also fit hearing aids on children in need we did a partnership with the cochlear implant company to not only provide cochlear implants, but to make sure there was 15 years of support 
after the surgery because I think everyone on this call knows that um, it's just it's expensive to have a cochlear implant. And in these developing countries, so many families, you know, they sell everything they have in order to be able to make it possible to get the device, not understanding about the ongoing cost. So we really work to make sure that that need was addressed. And we also um, partnered with the professionals that we had trained to provide um, therapy and rehabilitation support to the children after they got their implant. So, um, so we've, you know, as I said, we've been in Vietnam for um, just about 11 years now. And the, where Vietnam has been to where it is now is striking. And we can't, of course, we can't take the full credit for it, but I do think we help to um, create a lot of the positive change there. Where today, all the cochlear implant companies are in Vietnam. There's lots of early intervention program um, all the hearing aid companies, or most of them anyway, are there too. And families are familiar with this, um, this, this chance for kids to hear and speak. And so today, if I were to go to Vietnam today, I don't think they would even look twice at the fact that <laughs> hearing can speak. It's not a big deal anymore. So I feel very fortunate that I have had a chance to be a part of that trend. And so has with, with all of that that's happened and all the changes, has the government embrace this and put resources in place so that children, when they are identified, there's there's a system? Yeah, so they, um, thank you for asking that. So the government um, still does not provide financial aid for hearing aids and cochlear implants, which is probably the biggest barrier. I think that change is coming, it's slow, but it, it is coming. The hearing screening programs are supported um, by the major hospitals. So it's not a national hearing screening program, but they do screen newborns for hearing loss at the major hospitals. So again, progress, it, it, it takes time. Mm -hmm. The biggest um, area of progress though is the, the recognition that um, this, is, this is possible. I mean, we really had to, we started from the very beginning with the government in, in trying to educate them and it was just this, um, it, it, it took a lot to try to show that this can actually happen, that kids who are deaf and hard of hearing can listen and speak. And it took time for the kids that we trained or, you know, that our professionals trained, um, the Vietnamese professionals, for them to grow up, to be included in mainstream schools, to do well in mainstream schools. And I mean, that takes years, right? And so that's happening now. And so one of the things the government, the Ministry of Education asked um, the Global Foundation to help train a group of professionals, teachers and therapists in Hanoi who are um, they're part of a special group within the um, Ministry of, of Education that are responsible for developing curriculum to train teachers in the country. And the goal was to standardize uh, what what it, what the special education training would look like for teachers working with kids with hearing loss, and so we've um, been working with the Ministry of, of Education on on that and helping to um, give them the tools that they need to standardize a training curriculum that mm -hmm. will address auditory verbal practice and um, making sure that the professionals in the field have the knowledge and resources to be able to do what they need to do. And Vietnam has also supported a um, audiology 
um, training curriculum in the universities, which is also something that's pretty new. So it's, it's coming, it's slow, I, I will admit, but it's definitely coming. I think that, again, as more and more children continue to be successful, that um, the government will have to be more involved in, in, in other ways. And you have to excuse my ignorance, but the government there is it, it is what what's their philosophy? Is it is it a still communist government or is it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a communist government. They have um, a free enterprise market system, or it's different from our system, but it's um, they still have the communist constraints around thing, but. They do apply a more open society, um, free um, economic policy than what they did back in you know, the time of the Vietnam War, like or after the Vietnam War. So um, in, in the 1990s, they really started opening up the country more and more. So. They're, they're like uh, communism light. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. When you're there, it's, it's not, um, it's really not apparent. And I think... It's different from other countries that um, have stricter communism philosophies. The the only uh, maybe instance that that I, I deal with on a regular basis um, is that that they are um, that they do want to know where people are. So if we if we have a training workshop in a specific part of Vietnam and we invite people to come. They, they do have to get permission from their local authorities to be able to travel to that location. Um, but it's been, they're, they're so supportive that the government is so supportive of the work we've done. We, we really have name recognition in Vietnam. Um, and in order for us to work in Vietnam, we have to have a permit with the Vietnamese government. So I've worked hard over the years to cultivate that relationship and make sure that you know, we provided complete transparency with how we do our work, provide reports in timely fashion with these rare um, class who work in the government system. And they all just love the work we do. I mean, they see so much value in what we do and they're very grateful and thankful for it, as are the parents, especially, and also the professionals we work with. So I think it's such a feel good. And if anything, you know, given the history between the United States and Vietnam, I think it's been um, it's been really nice, and we've had people on our team who um, are older, you know, who remember the Vietnam War. Um, we've had interpreters who escaped Vietnam and came back to Vietnam with us to lend their talents in interpreting, and then kind of you know get to see old family and, and friends that they haven't seen in a long time. So there's definitely historical connotations there. Um, but we've also done some things with the um, U.S. Embassy and the Consulate General in down in Ho Chi Minh City, where we've been invited to share our work at um, consulate presentation, and they've given us grants and some funding support for our work. So, so I think you know I really think that Vietnam is, is a young country that they've really moved on from that animosity of that era, and uh, perhaps in some ways more easily than we have. So um, it's a great place, a great country. People are fabulous, very generous, and it's, it's always going to hold a special place in my heart. It's, it's, a, it's a great place. Sure. And so I know that you're expanding your mission with the foundation. 
to other countries, yeah. do other work. But where do you want to go in Vietnam? What else do you want to continue to do? I think that we um, are actually at a point where we're starting to phase out of our work in Vietnam. They, they have, they they know how to do this work, and I think we've reached a point where we're at, we're able to. So what we are providing is really more um, like coaching, mentorship, and um, collaboration on maybe specific cases or topics, but. We were so far away from where we were at the very beginning, where we were teaching them the basics of, you know, child development. You know, they 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 know all that. They've developed tools of their own. They're off and running. They really don't need our support as much as they think that they do. Um, mm-hmm. And so, with that, we we moved on to Mongolia um, in 2016. We started um, working there. That the government of Mongolia issued a mandate to establish newborn hearing screening in the country. And when I learned of it, I contacted the group. There was, um, there was a rotary group there that was kind of helping them, uh, the medical community, raise the money to achieve this mandate. So I connected with them, and it was a really interesting first Zoom call that we had. I think it was Zoom, or maybe it was Skype, I don't know. But it was... Um, uh, there was it was it was snowing outside, and there was some like one of the participants was kind of in there um, out in the countryside, and there was some like I, I believe like reindeer or something like coming walking back and forth behind the uh, person in the screen, and and it was just it felt like very like different type of culture in that initial place, and then the initial visit I had with them. But in that communication and that conversation, they, I, I learned that they're very focused on the screening, but there didn't seem to be a, as, as much support as I think we would like after the screening. So like what happens after the children are identified, like, you know, what services are in place? And the Mongolian government does provide subsidy for cochlear implants, which is impressive. And they um, provide some subsidy for hearing aids and um, also some subsidy for, they call it kind of a disability subsidy, but it can be used towards um, everything from transportation to therapy places or uh, parts for hearing aids, you know, whatever, or repairs for hearing aids, you know, whatever you, you need it for. So there was some social support, um, but it didn't, it seemed like there was an opportunity. So we ended up, so I, I educated them about what we had been doing in Vietnam over the past decade. And we came up with a, a larger program where if the, to implement newborn hearing screening, but then also to really focus again on that continuum of care, making sure that children have access to the hearing technology, and then they have professionals who are trained in the country to be able to support this population. And so um, in 2017, we had enough funding um, to, 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 to implement all of that. So we, um, we started off in the capital of Ulaanbaatar and made sure that all the hospitals there um, had newborn hearing screening equipment. And over half the population of the country lives in the capital. So it was a, a, an easy way to make a big impact pretty quickly. And then at the same time, um, our Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss Professionals um, customized our training curriculum, and we began training the um, medical professionals 
in pediatric audiology and then providing training in auditory verbal practice to the therapists who are working with kids after they get their hearing aids and cochlear implant. And um, that continues today. So we're still doing that. And so now in Mongolia in the capital, when we first started this project, there was only one hospital that had the equipment and the resources to screen children for hearing or babies for hearing loss at birth. And it was it was such it was such that they were only screening at risk babies. They, they just didn't have the wherewithal to do more than that. And so um, by 2018, we've had the newborn hearing screening program fully up and running and processes in place, referrals and system in place, all of that in place by 2018. So in two years, we um, took uh, all the hospitals in the capital are screening babies for hearing loss. It's 30,000 babies every year now that are getting this hearing test. And where we are now with that part of the project is expanding to the countryside. And we've targeted three provinces. And during COVID this past year, we've been able to continue that effort. Um, and so now the three provinces have the equipment. The Mongolians that um, our hearing screening partners have trained, have been providing training to their peers on hearing screening through video and whatnot due to restrictions on travel because of COVID. So they're hoping that by this summer, they'll be able to start screening babies for hearing loss in the rural areas as well, and to reach the other half of the population. So um, and then we'll, we did do some online training during COVID, um, actually in Vietnam and in Mongolia to continue to provide that information to them. So um, one of the things that I'm really proud about, because you know, our, our mandate from the very beginning was all about empowering the people in the country to be able to serve their own children. It's never been about providing direct service. And I think that that um, mantra has really played out during the pandemic because we've been able to continue so many of the um, implementation of projects. So you, know, you train people and then they want to implement new things to benefit from the training. And so all of these um, forward momentum projects in both Vietnam and in Mongolia have been able to be achieved because the people are empowered with the resources, the training and the knowledge that they need to be able to serve their own country. And so um, so while other organizations that are more service-based really have been able to just kind of wait until this pandemic is over, we've been able to continue on in many ways with what we do. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, that's very exciting. And and I'm very happy you were able to do that and the way it was structured. So you didn't really miss any time there or not much. Yeah. And just keep right. doing what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And, so, yeah. And we, go ahead. No, I, and I think you... Uh, from what I recall, you were looking at some Central South America projects? Yeah, so we were in Ecuador. for um, Ecuador. That's right. And that was, uh, it was an interesting project. It was with the Ministry of Public Health in Ecuador. And it was, so Ecuador is further along than some of these other countries um, in terms of providing services for young kids with hearing loss. They, um, where their opportunity was, was just strengthening skills, and especially in auditory verbal practice, but also in audiology too. So it was really focused on training, just really focused on that. Um, 
and then Ecuador, they, they've had some, um, a lot of political changes um, during the time when we were trying to work there. And so those, those ended up being challenging um, in terms of getting the appropriate permissions and felt like it was, that um, it was difficult. It, the rules kept changing in Ecuador. So you think you checked off all the boxes and then you find out that you actually needed to be looking at this other list of things to get done before they would let you in the country. So um, it was unfortunate because I know the people in the government and the people in the field were really hoping for us to continue on for several years in Ecuador. But it's just, it just got to be, got to a point where um, the expense and the time uh, involved in working through this bureaucratic process was just more than we could take on. So, you know, we were on good terms and if they ever um, simplify their process, I'm sure we'll, we'll be going back. But in the meantime, we're, we're looking at, um, we, we, we started focusing on Mongolia more and our work in Vietnam. And, and now we are establishing a new project in the country of Bhutan. Bhutan, wow. So that's going to be the next uh, one of uh, your additional area of focus going forward over the next uh, few years. I think so. Yes, we're really excited about this one. It's a partnership with the United Nations Technology Bank and with um, Medtronic Labs, which is a social enterprise. And the three mm -hmm. of us, um, we have different mandates, but all sort of they're synergistic, synergistic. And so the um, United Nations Technology Bank is interested to um, to address the need for um, more services for um, children with hearing loss in, in low resource countries. And it's kind of part of this WHO mandate that was issued back in 2017 to make ear and hearing care more of a priority in government health plans around the world. And so, um, so we've been invited actually to this project to help with the zero to six component. The overall project is for the zero to 14. It has two distinct parts. The seven to 14 group is more um, going to um, mainstream schools, monasteries, more of a public health initiative to make sure that the children are hearing well and that they don't have, you know, earwax or other um, issues that might lead to permanent hearing loss. So it's more for typically developing children and then making sure that they continue to hear well. And then for the zero to six program is, is, is again, that continuum of care. We, and we really are starting from scratch there because they, they have very limited resources. So it will be a challenging, but incredibly fascinating project. So we're looking forward to that. Well, it, it's, it's all very exciting. And you, you are just an amazing person to, to be doing all this and to have seen that need in Vietnam initially, and then to see where you are now, these years later, over the past decade, what you've been able to achieve, it's its just mind blowing. And I, I just really compliment you on all your hard work. And you are truly changing the lives uh, of these children and the families and uh, having such an impact uh, throughout these countries. That's really amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been it's been incredibly rewarding work and I'm so grateful to all the professionals and in-country people we collaborate with. Um, it's just been a, it's been a very um, 
it's, a, it's a definite community effort, worldwide community effort. So it's, it's, it's lovely to be a part of it. And Paige, if, if someone who's listening would like to contact you or to maybe donate some funds, connect <laughs> some funds to you, um, how can they reach you? Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, we have a website and it's um, childrenwithhearingloss.org. So the name of our organization is the Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss. Um, and our website is childrenwithhearingloss.org. And if you go there, you'll see the big red donate button. Uh, but you can also read a lot more about the different programs and our organization's mission there. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate this. And, uh, and good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate you having me today. Paige is such a remarkable person. I really admire her and everything that she's been doing and continues to do. She saw the need in Vietnam initially and essentially built a foundation that not only addressed the problems of children and families and those professionals in Vietnam, but now is branching out to these other countries and continuing to have such a tremendous impact. She is changing lives. And again, I just admire everything that she's doing. So if you have time and if you have resources, please reach out to her. The Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss. Visit the website and donate if you can. And thank you for listening. If you don't mind, please give us a five-star review. That helps us to uh, attract new subscribers and listeners and to reach more people. And with that, until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.